The message this morning is titled, God's Dice. Um, you know, it looks a lot like, uh, when we're living in, in, in the day-to-day world, it can look a lot like things uh, make no sense. That it's all just uh, a roll of the dice. I was watching a movie last night, and there was a uh, character who, uh, 18 months before, had been in a terrible car accident and was paralyzed uh, from the waist down and confined to a wheelchair. And so she, you know, she has a, a good sense of humor about it, um, but she, she says in, in a moment of sort of a confession, she says, the more I, I live and the longer I think about it, the more it seems as though there's no rhyme or reason to anything. And in the event of modern uh, physics, with quantum uh, mechanics, we do believe that at some level, uh, at the subatomic level, there is a certain amount of, of chaos, of um, randomness, of quote-unquote indeterminacy that um, is at the bottom of some of our, our physical world. So there's even a sense that, uh, from the standpoint of modern physics, there is uh, a, an element of, of chance, of of randomness uh, to the world, and it can sometimes seem like, um, at the macro level, at our level, that it's all just dice. Well, last week, um, we found out that uh, the Jews in Susa, in, in Persia, have an enemy. His name is Haman, and we're going to see what he plans for them today. If you wouldn't mind standing, let's read the text together. This is, uh, we're going to start out with uh, just the uh, finished chapter 3, I think it's 3, 7 to 13 or 15, something like that. Let's read it together. Uh, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes uh, to us, they cast pur, that is, dice, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they don't keep your laws, king. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the people are given to you, and the money is yours anyway, so do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day to sharpen their knives. 
the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed on Shushan, that is Susa, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was thrown into confusion. You may be seated. Um, I just want to go through the text just one time. Just pull out a few things that um, are, are interesting for us that can help give us a sense of the shape of this story. Now, obviously, at the macro level, what we've got is a guy, Haman, who has convinced the king to put a law into place such that in the month of Adar, which we'll see um, near the end, is the last month um, of the Jewish calendar. Of the, uh, so at the end of the year, at the very end of the year, um, approximately one year from the date of the uh, decree. On one day, on the 13th day of that month, the Jews are to be slaughtered in every city uh, in the empire. So people are to be preparing to rise up on an, and on one day, um, pull out the long knives and go to work. Now Haman, when he does this, he doesn't tell the king who he's talking about. He doesn't say, I want to kill the Jews. He's a little more circumspect. He says, there's a certain people, king. They're weird. They don't keep your laws. He, he neglects to tell the king, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, that they're probably rich, a wealthy people, a wealthy minority. Um, and he has reasons for that. But, but he tells the king, there's a problem here, king. And you know, they're, they're enemies of the people. They don't keep your laws. They're subversive. And so Xerxes hears this, and he's like, well, yeah, we've got to get rid of these people. I can't be having folks running around disobeying my commands. That, that could foment rebellion. I could lose my power. And then when we look at that, it says um, they don't keep the king's laws. That should be a little weird for us, because as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, at least Esther seems to be obeying the king's laws very well. She's not at all participating in the food laws of the Jews. She has become married to a foreigner, namely the king. Um, she, she herself has been, maybe sort of has like a, a, an emergency exemption from uh, keeping the Jewish law in order to give the Jews um, some kind of influence up at the level of the palace. So it does seem that the Jews are willing to follow the king's laws here and there, but as we saw last week, when the push comes to shove, they like to stand up and push back. And so when, when Mordecai is told to bow before Haman, he says no, and that makes Haman mad. And so Haman wants to get revenge. The point, of course, that in your note sheet, it says um, the Jews in the now Persian Empire stand out. We see them. They, they don't just fit in. Um, they're the kind of people who people notice. And we saw that last week with uh, some of what happened to Mordecai. Uh, we go on in verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. That sounds like a lot, but it actually is more than you could possibly imagine. It is probably about two-thirds of GDP in, uh, in Susa, in the city. Uh, it's a lot of money. And that should tell us that Haman really, really, really hates the Jews. That he's willing to, uh, he must be really wealthy too, that he's willing to dip, dip into his own pockets and front about two-thirds of what the, the city is expected to make in, in one year and, and make sure that everybody's paid so that they get the job done and they get all these people. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. I'm going to bring out a little bit more uh, of the history between the Jews and uh, Agag and the Amalekites in just a second. 
But it's interesting uh, that the king says the money is yours. You know, do whatever you want. Uh, the king thinks he's getting a really, really good deal. Not only are there these revolutionaries in the midst that Haman has you know, found uh, based on his sources and, and his intelligence, but Haman's going to take care of it you know, at no, no cost to the empire. Uh, this is a really, really great deal for Xerxes. It just so happens, of course, that when this is sort of carried out, his wife is going to have to be murdered. So he probably, when he finds out about that, is probably going to be a little upset. The next verse. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. The month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. That sounds pretty, uh, pretty horrible. Thankfully, God would never do anything like that. Um, this is something that only uh, happens uh, to the people of God, never that the people of God are expected to execute. Except, interestingly, uh, in 1 Samuel 15. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek, and their king Agag for what he did to Israel how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt now go and attack Amalek and devote to me all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman infant and nursing child ox and sheep camel and donkey this is uh, God's command to Saul um, and Saul is, is going out into the field against the Amalekites uh, and their king, Agag, in order to get back, in some ways, against uh, the Amal- Amalekites and Agag for what they've always done. They have always been persecutors of the Jews. We have it, um, really, it starts out in Exodus. We, we get the, um, the genealogies in Genesis. But they're always the people to the east and to the south of the Jews, and they're always coming up after them always attacking them. They're people who are people of blood. They love to spill blood. That's the thing that really, really upsets God. God is not ultimately a God of war and violence. That's not God's modus operandi, if you will. God is actually a God of peace, a God who brings peace. But there are some places and some times when evil is so deep and it is so virulent that it has to be eradicated. And it's interesting the language that Yahweh God uses. Now go and attack Amalek and devote to me. If you read the New King James, that's going to say destroy. But the Hebrew underneath it is the word harem. And that's in your notes um, in number two. Harem. H-A-R-E-M. Harem. Harem is not normally uh, the word that you use for destroy. It's actually the word that we use for votive offerings, for sacrifices to God. That's the second part. It's used of votive, V-O-T-I-V-E, V-O-T-I-V-E, offerings. See, what God's doing is he's looking at this, you might even call it a cancer on the earth, a people who are characterized fundamentally by violence. And that's who they are. And he tells Saul, we've got to get rid of this. It has to be destroyed. And so he says, but, 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 I don't want you to think that this is just a chance for you to get back at your enemies. I I want you to devote. I want you to make this somehow sacral or religious. I want you to harness your violence under the understanding that what you are doing is trying to make the world right. 
and to get rid of this. This is not supposed to continue year after year after year. The blood feud needs to stop. We need to get rid of this cancer. And so God says, you're not going to make any money on this. That's why it says at the end there, uh, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There's no, there's no plunder for you, Israel. You're getting rid of everything. You are simply acting as my righteous wrath against evil. Contrast this with Haman. We can go back. Haman expects to plunder their possessions. Haman, and this is number three in your note sheet, expects to make money when he eliminates the Jews. Haman is what we call in the 21st century a hater. And haters going to hate, apparently. What God has called Israel to do is not be haters, but to be the righteous will of his own hand. This, is, this does tell you some interesting things about God, though. Um, you might have heard that God is sort of fluffy and fun, a, a, an old man with a beard uh, and, and a clock or something, who, who floats on the clouds? No. God is really, really serious about evil. Really serious. And when it goes on too long, he sometimes requires people to do things that are ultimately not in keeping with the core of who he is, a God of peace and love, in order that peace and love may flourish. Evil is serious, and God takes it seriously. Let's go to the next verse. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province. Um, the couriers go out, and then they're at the end. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That gives us an indication that, that Haman is not... You know, some, there, there have been times in history where, um, especially Europeans, have accused the Jewish people of being completely anti-Gentile, right? We're the Gentiles, and uh, the Jews uh, look at Gentiles as, as just bad all the time. That, that, that was very prominent, um, especially in the 1930s in Germany. Uh, that is not necessarily how the Jews think about us. And that's why it's important that the author includes the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The normal people in Susa are like, whoa, 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 you just passed a law that says we are going to take out our weapons and murder our neighbors? That's weird. Um, and I kind of like them. They're, they're, they're strange. Uh, they, they don't eat the right stuff, and they seem to kind of you know, marry only within their ethnic group. But, but for the most part, they, they seem like decent people. Like when we do business together, I, they, they seem like good family, you know, normal people. It really shocks the people of Susa and presumably everywhere else in the empire that this small group, a small group, a subset of, of, of people who genuinely are anti-Semitic um, are getting their way and are having all of these you know, otherwise decent folks murdered. Man, you read this story, and I mean, I've obviously alluded to it a few times, and you just can't help but here, in the background, the Shoah, the Holocaust, 
you know, we're going to have an order going to go. It's going to go out. It's going to be in the most bureaucratic, you know, language. We're not going to, you know, we're going to just say it. And we're going to get rid of these rich freaks, these weirdos, these enemies of the state. We're going to plunder their property. You know, if they have expensive art, gold fillings in their teeth, things like that, we're going to make sure we can confiscate those for our own wealth. Can I just read you this? This is so fascinating. Uh, this goes out to um, the government in Poland. In, it's written in July of 1942. I herewith order that the resettlement of the entire Jewish population of the government general be carried out and completed by December 31st, 1942. From December 31st, 1942, no persons of Jewish origin may remain within the government general unless they are in collection camps in Warsaw, Krakow, Czerstakowa, I looked that up, Radom, and Lublin. All other work on which Jewish labor is employed must be finished by that date, or in the event that that is not possible, it must be transferred to one of the collection camps. These measures are required with a view to the necessary ethnic division of races and peoples for the new order in Europe, and also in the interests of the security and cleanliness of the German Reich and its sphere of interest. Every breach of this regulation spells a danger to quiet and order in the entire German sphere of interest, a point of application for the resistance movement and a source of moral and physical pestilence. For all these reasons, a total cleansing is necessary and therefore to be carried out. Cases in which the date set cannot be observed will be reported to me in time so that I can see to corrective action at an early date. All requests by other offices and for changes or permits for exceptions to be made must be presented to me personally. Heil Hitler. Heinrich Himmler. July 1942. You know, Germany was a, a Christian country at one, at one time. It's almost as if Himmler had opened up the book of the Jews and turned to Esther and came up with a how-to manual for, for getting the job done. It's almost as if Himmler looked at Haman and said, your ideas were right, friend, but you lacked the organization and political will to carry them out. There's, um, there's a Jewish scholar who... Um, writes on Esther, and this is from the early 90s. Um, he says this, he says, every year at Purim, when I hear the Esther scroll read in the synagogue, I know that it is true. Indeed, I relive its truth and know its actuality. Almost without an effort of imagination, I feel something of the anxiety that seized the, the Jews of Persia upon learning of Haman's threat to their lives. And I join in their exhilaration at their deliverance. Except, I don't think there, but my persecutor of the Jews, now not vizier like Haman, but supreme leader, no longer had to resort to ruse, but could proceed directly to execute his scheme with the enthusiastic participation, or at least the criminal complicity of most of his subjects. One third of the Jews in the world were wiped out, millions of others tormented beyond telling. Haman's goal to slaughter, slay, and destroy all the Jews, young and old, was nearly realized. And other Hamans are always waiting to revive the attempt. That's the thing that gets me about that. 
Other Hamans are always waiting to revive the attempt. You know, we look at the Holocaust and we think, wow, that, was, um, that is truly the, the high point, the nadir of anti-Semitism. But it wasn't the first time that the Jews were systematically tried to be eliminated. There have been pogroms as long as history, and specifically Christian history, uh, we have. Um, and now, I mean, if you, if, if, you're, if you pay attention to the news, uh, you, you, you hear these troubling things, like, for example, that uh, thousands of the very small population of Jews in the country of France are exiting right now, and they're heading to Israel. Um, they, they took notice when um, those uh, Islamists shot up the, the atheist newspaper, and then the other Islamists went to a Jewish market and began trying to shoot um, the Jews who were there. They take it very seriously because they have this thing. It, it, it's almost, you read, um, you read what Michael Fox writes, and you can almost hear in the background uh, that sense that you have some days when you wake up and things are not good. And you wake up and your heart's racing. Maybe you're, you're concerned about um, finances. Uh, maybe it, it's something. But you, you wake up a little bit early, maybe a couple hours early. Your, your alarm hasn't gone off. And your heart is racing as your, your mind is processing all these things that are going on. This is what happens to him when he hears Esther read aloud. Because he is a survivor. He saw it firsthand. And so people like Michael Fox, when they hear pronounce, uh, pronouncements from you know, the leaders in uh, Iran that say things like death to Israel, they take it very seriously. Uh, there's an interesting thing. Uh, Hannah Arendt, she, in reflecting on the Holocaust, wrote about the quote-unquote banality of evil. Um, and one of the things that she brings out in that is that you, you start out and you, and you think about things that are truly, truly horrific, right? Truly horror, true horror. And the typical response is for us to think, well, those people that are saying those things, that's crazy. I mean, you know, maybe they have some deep-seated hatred and animosity, but surely it's never going to manifest itself in a really, really horrible way, right? Right? That's, that's nuts. In fact, you know... <laughs> They, they're not serious. They're, 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 they're talking out one side of the mouth, but on the other hand, they're not really going to do what they're talking about doing. And it's all just talk. Let's laugh it off. Ha! In the course of my life, I have very often been a prophet and have usually been ridiculed for it. During the time of my struggle for power, it was in the first instance the Jewish race which only received my prophecies with laughter when I said that I would one day take over the leadership of the state and with it, that of the whole nation. And that I would then, among many other things, settle the Jewish problem. Their laughter was uproarious. But I think that for some time now, they have been laughing on the other side of their face. Uh, Reichstag means parliament. That's Hitler... Uh, in public to his politicians being very open about what's going on. If you're wondering, that laughing on the other side of the face probably comes from in Greek tragedy uh, when uh, a character at the beginning of the play would be happy and so would wear a mask that was smiling and joyful. Ha ha ha! And then at the end, once they see what's actually taken place, they replace that mask with one that's crying and sad. That's probably where that saying comes from. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learns all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. I'm not sure that we have anything approaching the kind of experience that this must have been. Um, the closest that I think we get is when we encounter uh, death, unexpected death. And I, I even ask you, when was the last time you really wept? I mean wept. When you let it all out. When you were so overcome by what was going on that you immediately threw yourself or were thrown perhaps into gnashing of teeth as we say. Um, I, I don't want to minimize, um, I don't want to get out of perspective here, but I, I will share the last time I wept was, I mean really wept, was when um, the dog I had growing up died. Now that seems uh, silly uh, to talk about in the context of the, of the Holocaust. And uh, of um, Haman's plot. But I bring it up because I want to bring out a couple of things about the practice of mourning. What had happened, um, I was in a very um, emotional time of my life. Uh, it was a time of my life when I was dealing with a great deal of anxiety um, and was not what you would call emotionally healthy. And um, my parents had, had were on vacation and uh, our dog, Chewy, the dog that um, I had had uh, since uh, 1999, I think, uh, the dog that I cared very, very deeply about was going through a neurological disorder, and, and the dog uh, could no longer um, even eat. Um, it would sort of, you could tell he was hungry, and he, so he put his head down and, and lapped up, and tried to lap up food that, that Aaron actually put in a blender so that he could get it, get it down. Um, and, you know, we knew that we had to, uh, we had to put him down, he wasn't going to get better, so we did. Um, and I remember putting my hand on his, his chest as the shot went in, and I remember feeling his heart stop. Um, and I can't, I can't really get to that place now, but I can tell you that, that I went home, and I mean, I was sobbing, racked with, with tears, to the point that my muscles were hurting because I was so exhausted from shrieking and crying and weeping. And it, obviously, I mean, I think, looking back, it wasn't just the dog. It was, you know, life as a whole and things that were going on. Um, but that's what it was. Now, that is a natural human response, okay? But notice what the Jews do. They don't just have that. They do have that. That's, of course, going on as they're looking at their neighbors picking up knives and murdering them. That's absolutely happening. But then their response is fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Look at that. Fasting, weeping, and wailing. They, the, the natural human response is, is ex, an expression, a deep, deep felt, deeply felt expression of emotion. But they bring that in with a spiritual practice, fasting. Uh, mourning in Judaism, and I would hope in Christianity, 
is itself a spiritual practice. It's not something we, that, that just happens to us in the midst of, of horror. It is something that we're called to do because it is something God has given us for our relationship with him. So the idea is you're, you're, you're fasting, you're not eating, and you're, um, so you're obviously very uh, emotionally unstable. You'll notice that when you don't eat, you become emotionally unstable. That's part of what happens in fasting. It's one of the good things about it. And so you're in a place of instability and, and, and pain. And the idea is that God, who loves you, looks and sees this. He sees that you're hurting in a way that's not normal to you. He sees you hurting in a deep way, and he responds. That's the goal, the goal well, the first goal of fasting, and this is in your notes. The process of fasting, weeping, and wailing is meant to call God to action. God is supposed to look down at this person or this people that he loves so dearly, and he's supposed to be moved to action as he identifies with you. God sees his people and says, that's not how you're meant to be. I must respond. And so on the one hand, your actions are directed to God, saying, God, look at what's happened to us. Think about what Haman has just done. How can this happen if we're your people? And then secondly, it gives the people a way to move to faith. To move to faith. I didn't share this part um, of Michael Fox's quote, but one of the things that he does is he, he calls out God for the Holocaust. He says, God, how could you be so hidden from us, your people? He even calls it, and this is, I mean, theologically, I, I'm not sure how to deal with it, but he says, this is unforgivable, God, that you did this. You let this happen. And you can understand the response. Um, it, it makes sense to have that response. But I wonder if perhaps the point of fasting and mourning and weeping is for us to get it out, to lay it out, to empty ourselves, to empty it all out so that we can come to a place of trust again. And I, 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 I will not speak... I, um, on what it must like, be like for those who um, respond uh, to the Shoah. But I will say this. In my own experience, after um, tremendous emotional travail, there is something, there is a strange kind of peace. Uh, a strange kind of silence. A strange calm. Uh, in which it's possible, even in the midst of terrible, terrible experiences, to at least begin to have the possibility of trusting again. I mention this because uh, next, uh, probably next week, um, depending on how far Neil gets, we're going to see Mordecai, and he's going to say the strangest thing. He's going to say, well, Esther, you know, if, if you can't figure it out, God's going to prov-. Well, he doesn't say God. They never mentioned God in Esther. He says, Some, somebody else, something else is going to come to preserve the Jews. Which is a, just a tremendous 
uh, expression of faith, especially for us living in the shadow of the Holocaust. It is tremendous that the law has gone out to the entire empire, all of Persia. And Mordecai's got access to Esther, who's the queen, the king's wife. And, and Mordecai, for whatever has happened in his time of fasting and mourning and weeping, he has come to a place where he is able to say, you know what, Esther, do what you want. Something's going to come. The Jews are going to make it. Let's go back to the beginning um, of, the, uh, of, the, of the text. It says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is dice, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Um, I think it would be helpful if we could get a sense of maybe how this works in the Jewish calendar. Um, so if we can pull that up um, next. Yes, right here. Okay, so here's a circle. This, uh, this is how the, the Jewish calendar works. You can see that in, the mid- in between March and April, that's Nisan. That's the beginning of the year, right? That's the beginning of the year. And we go all the way around and we get to Adar, that's the 12th. Uh, so really what we, we would think of it is like January to December, right? And which is when I was reading Himmler's quote when he's like, oh yeah, by the 31st of December we're going to make sure all the Jews are gone out of Poland. That was really creepy. Um, all right, Nisan 1, Adar 12. Okay, so where we are is Haman is in the month of Nisan and he's coming up with uh, the, the timeline for, for murdering all the Jews and he's doing it by, by casting lots. And probably the best way we can think about that is it's a very complicated astrological system of throwing um, lots which are more or less like dice um, and they have different interpretations for each way the dice land, right? And so they've got a calendar, right? And they've got their, their, their calendar and they're throwing the dice and they're waiting for the dice to have the right omens so that they can pick the day, the, the propitious, the auspicious day of... of Massacre of genocide. And so they're throwing the dice, they're throwing the dice, they're throwing the dice. Because they want to be in line with the gods, right? They, the, in, in the ancient world, Haman is looking up and he sees the constellations, he associates these uh, with the gods, the Persian gods specifically, probably for him, the Amalekite gods. And uh, he wants to hear what they have to say about things, and he wants to get it right. Um, and if we could just pull the next one up. Yeah, they were here. I know, I apologize for the quality, but, but notice this, this is interesting. So, uh, Haman on, in Nisan is rolling dice. Nisan is when the Jews celebrate Passover. It corresponds roughly to when we uh, celebrate Easter. Haman's throwing dice. And the Jews are celebrating at this time the celebration of when the angel of death passed over. When the Israelites were redeemed from bondage and slavery in Egypt... Haman thinks he's got God's dice. As the story plays out, we find that he doesn't. This is cool. Um, so in, uh, we can cycle through to the next uh, picture. In 1833, or I'm sorry, 1933, uh, Albert Einstein, what he had been on, uh, he's Jewish from, um, from Poland, uh, he had been lecturing and, and whatnot outside the country, so he comes back uh, to, to Germany, Poland, or, or he's intending to. And in, eight, in 1933, he um, gets to Belgium, and the Germans have started distributing this magazine. And the magazine uh, has this page where it highlights uh, all of the, quote, uh, of the Jews who are in power who, quote, have not yet hanged. 
Um, and he's, he's looking at this terrible article, and it's, it mentions mostly public Jewish intellectuals who have not yet been hanged, and he sees his name. And this, we, we actually just got this a couple of years ago. This is the, the, the card he filled out when he arrived in Britain after immediately getting on a boat and getting out of Dodge um, in 18, or 1933. Uh, next one we have uh, in 1936, he uh, declares his intention to become a citizen of the United States of America. Um, and that happens that same year. Um, we have a picture here of him saying his, uh, his oaths. I think we have a picture of him saying his... There it is. Yeah. Uh, that was in 1936, um, still before World War II. Albert Einstein says this. Next slide, please. Tremendous that um, Albert Einstein, who's probably a deist if he's anything, and speaking in the language of modern physics and in the shadow of the Holocaust, says this. Also tremendous is the fact that the nation state of Israel, which did not exist for 2,000 years, was reconstituted in the aftermath of World War II. something that never happened to a people group in the history of the world to have been dispersed and then reconstituted. It's almost as if God's not done with his people. It's almost as if God doesn't give up. It's almost as if God's not done with us. Um, I, I, you know, I don't want to be alarmist at all, but I do notice uh, more and more that I'm uncomfortable um, living out, practicing um, my Christianity in the public square. I think more and more I, I tend to see myself maybe through the eyes of the people I'm interacting with as sort of weird with those strange practices. Um, a decent person, of course, but, but has some really troubling beliefs and attributes. Things that just don't comply with the state. And again, nothing on what it must be like for the Jews. Um, but I'm beginning to sense a bit of affinity, a bit of kinship uh, with them in the way that they feel like a minority. And yet, in the midst of that, I confess with Albert Einstein. And with the book of Esther, that God doesn't play dice. That God is sovereign. That God's got something in store. Some way of redemption, some hope, some future. He did it with Esther. He did it in Christ. That when all looked lost, when even Israel had lost its way forever, couldn't get on track, God stepped in. It made it happen. And if that's the case, I confess before you people, God's not done with us. God doesn't play dice. Let's pray.
Father, we, um, we confess uh, solidarity with our spiritual cousins, um, the Jews, your people, your chosen people, as they too experience anxiety. God, we know that they have enemies, and we know that, honestly, we have enemies because of our commitment to you. But God, we also confess that you're big and you're powerful and you run the show. We ask you um, to, hallelujah, to save us. To, we, we praise you. Hoshana, save us as we need to be saved. And give us that trust, that, that, that ability to empty it out when things look wrong and to come to a place where we have the possibility again of trusting you when, it, when it's hard. God, I pray for any person here who's having a hard time trusting you that you'll give them the space to mourn and weep and fast and wail until they can have the peace that you, you seek for them. God, we trust that you're good and we love you. In the name of your son we pray, amen.